Okay. Um, hopefully you've got an outline. And it says, talk two, why not pray? And last week we began by recognising what we might call uh, the paradox of prayer, um, which is that prayer is both simple and difficult at the same time. Simple and difficult. It really is enormously simple. Uh, we said last time, didn't we, that prayer is speaking to God, asking him to do his things, his thing using words. And we discovered this by thinking about some of the things that prayer is not. You may remember uh, the first sort of few minutes of last week's talk, we looked at various ways that prayer has been misunderstood. And we said that it's not some kind of set piece of words that we have to say or performing some kind of ritual. It's not living your life for God. That's not prayer. We said that it's not listening to God or hearing God, although those things are important. It is very much speaking to God. It's not some sort of feeling or emotion. It's not something you can do silently or wordlessly. Well, you can do it silently, but not wordlessly. It's not something you can do by lighting a candle. And it's not any of those impersonal things like spinning wheels and so on. Prayer is asking God for things in words. In other words, prayer is faith articulated. If you think about it, faith is trust in God. Faith is one of those misunderstood sort of Bible words uh, that people have all sorts of funny views about, but faith is basically trust, dependence. If you're sitting on a chair right now, you have put faith in that chair to hold your bottom and the rest of your body and your weight. You have depended yourself on that chair. It's not a particular religious activity to sit on a chair, but you are exercising faith and faith is exercised in God when we pray. Prayer is an expression of our trust in God. And that is why prayer is so easy, because faith in God is easy. That means if you're a Christian, then you are an expert in prayer. Have a look at uh, Hebrews 10 on the sheet in front of you. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. That passage is not specifically teaching us about prayer. But notice the relationship we have with God because of Jesus. Notice the temple language, the most holy place, the curtain, the priest, all that Old Testament language showing us the place where we used to have to go under the old covenant to have a glimpse of God, to have a word with God. He's saying all that is now done by Jesus. He is the new temple. The curtain has been broken in two. He is the priest, the sacrifice. Everything the temple brought to the old covenant we have in Jesus. And so verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. In other words, as a Christian, if you have faith in God, you have everything you need to know about prayer already. You have access to God through Christ. All the barriers have come down. There is nothing on this earth or in heaven stopping you from praying. No barriers, no reason, no guilt, no sin, nothing to stop you. And as we said last week, the Christian life begins with prayer. You can't be a Christian without praying to the Father. 
calling on God in prayer, calling on Christ for mercy. That is what a Christian is. A Christian is a prayer. Now, incidentally, just to press the pause button and have just a very small but important digression. If this is not you, if as I'm speaking about this and you're thinking, actually, that isn't describing me, I'm not someone who has put my faith in Christ. I'm not someone who has access to God. Then can I encourage you to do something about that? There might be a sense of embarrassment that people kind of think you are a believer, you are a Christian. But don't let that sense of embarrassment stop you from taking the step to actually put your trust in Christ before the end of this evening. Now, why don't you speak to your group leader or a friend and say, look, I'm not sure I am a Christian. I'm not sure those things do describe me. Can you help me to sort that out and pray the prayer that begins the Christian life? End of digression. If you are a Christian, then you are someone who prays. You are an expert in prayer. How do you feel about that? There are no techniques that I can teach you. No special position, no special words or voice or vocabulary or posture. What Jesus has done has made you an expert in prayer. It is really, really easy. But as I'm saying this, we're all sitting there thinking, actually, it's difficult, isn't it? And that is the other side of the paradox. Because I said faith is easy, but actually faith isn't so easy, is it? For sinful human beings who revolve our world around ourselves, actually, there is nothing harder than to put faith in God to actually be dependent on God. It's easy to put faith in a chair, isn't it? But what if you're a sinful person whose natural inclination is to resist God? It is quite hard, actually, to put faith in God. And so the other side of the paradox is that while prayer is simple and easy, it is also difficult because depending on God is difficult for us to do. And I don't know any Christian who would say their prayer life is as they would like it to be. Many of us struggle at various times to pray regularly, faithfully, disciplined, intentional, meaningfully, because we find it difficult to depend on God. This is not a time management issue. This is a spiritual issue. But I want to suggest seven particular reasons why we don't pray. I'm not suggesting these will all be true for all of us, but some of us, some of them will be true for some of them. And this exercise is going to clear the decks so that next week we can see, well, how do we get down to pray? Firstly, we are naturalists. Make sure you read that rightly, not naturists. That is something different. We are naturalists. That is, we've been brought up to think of the world in a particular way. And our relationship with the world and God's relationship with the world. In other words, we've been taught a basic scientific paradigm of life that this world operates by the laws of nature, by the rules of cause and effect. And if that is how the world works, then how can prayer change anything? Why should God intervene into this world to answer my prayers or your prayers? So let's take a a simple example that we'll kind of work through this problem with. Have you ever prayed for the weather? Living in Lancaster, probably most of us pray for the weather quite often. Um, We pray, don't we, for good weather for the student weekender or for the outing or 
I'm praying for good weather for that guest event in a couple of weeks' time. It will be lovely, won't it, to have the sun out uh, for the guest event so we can enjoy the courtyard next week, scones in the courtyard for the coronation weekend. It's a real faff when it rains, as we all saw this morning when we tried to have that photograph and Chloe was enjoying herself behind the camera, taking picture after picture while we were just getting sodden. And so we pray without thinking. Lord, please let it be dry this weekend. Please let it stop raining just for that five minutes of the photograph. But that prayer actually raises quite a lot of difficult theological issues. It will make your brain ache if you think about it. To ask that the sun will come out for this particular event, I'm asking God to do something really quite extraordinary, to intervene over the laws of nature, which involve weather fronts and air patterns and air pressure and jet streams and El Nino and all these kinds of things. So my, one of my children gave me this book for Christmas a little while ago, and I just got around to reading it. What does rain smell like? Rainbows don't exist. It takes 200 hours for a cloud droplet to land on the ground. 200 hours. There are 100 lightning strikes hitting Earth's surface every second and many, many other interesting facts about the weather. Well, this was a, a nice kind of light bit of bedtime reading that I really enjoyed. But what I learned is that the weather is all interconnected. In other words... Now, geographers among us, you, know, you can come and tell me later you know, whether I've got this kind of vaguely right, but what I picked up from the book is that the weather that's going to happen tomorrow basically started six months ago in the South Pacific because everything is connected. And actually, probably people will say, well, it actually began years ago, decades ago, because the weather is influenced by climate and so on. And so to pray... Lord, please let it stop raining for the coronation weekend. Please let it stop raining for this event. Is actually quite a significant thing to pray, isn't it? We're seriously asking God to step in and intervene into these processes for our little church event. But I wonder if you've actually spotted the problem in the way I've been speaking. We should have particularly spotted this problem in the light of last term's talks about the omniscience of, of God and so on. I wonder if you notice a little word I casually threw in that is actually one I shouldn't have used. It's the word intervene. Anyone notice that? I said we're asking God to intervene in his world. And that is a faulty view of God. It's as if the gears of the world are working and they're just doing their own thing and we're asking God to kind of jam his stick into the machine for a moment to answer our prayer. But that is the wrong way to think about God and his world. This is all God's world. There is no separation between natural and supernatural. God cannot intervene in anything. He doesn't intervene. God is sovereign over everything, over every droplet of rain, over every molecule of every cloud. And so we need to change the way we think. When we pray for the weather to change, we are saying something bigger about God than that he might intervene. We are saying he is not bound by the laws of nature at all, that he is so sovereign that he already knew 
before the creation of the world, let alone before six months ago when the cloud formations were starting over the South Pacific, what we would pray. And he is so sovereign, as we will come to think about in a week or two's time, that he can use our prayers to actually purpose his plan in this world. And we'll think more about that at a later time. But on the sheet, Proverbs 21, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. Everything is in God's hands. So that's the first reason we may not pray, because we are naturalists. We don't believe that God can do these things. But as soon as we start thinking like that, we fall into an opposite error, which is we become fatalists. That is, if God has already decided every detail of the universe, then why bother praying? Because God has already got it worked out already. If God is sovereign and has worked everything out, even what the weather's going to do tomorrow, what is the point in praying? I mean, can we actually ask God to change his mind? And if so, doesn't that raise a whole host of other problems? See, what about conflicting prayers? What if, while we are praying for sunshine on the coronation weekend for our scones in the courtyard, the farmer down the road is praying for rain? Can God handle that? Of course he can. How does he handle it? How does he decide? Does he have favourites? Is it the farmer's turn this week, but it's our turn next week? Is it because we pray more fervently for our scones in the courtyard than the farmer prays for his rain? If God is truly sovereign, then what use are our prayers to accomplish his purposes? Well, we're going to think about this in a little bit more detail in future weeks. But for now, just turn to Nehemiah chapter 2, if you would. Someone could shout a page number out, that would be helpful. Don't ever be embarrassed by looking in the contents page. Some of these books are very hard to find. They disappear. Joseph? 485, thank you. 485. Here's an example of someone who believes in prayer. Nehemiah 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I, this is Nehemiah, took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. That is a very impressive and unimpressive prayer, isn't it? Verse 4. How long do you think Nehemiah had to pray before he had to answer the king? He's standing there with the wine in his hand, sort of pouring at the king's table. The king asks him a question. He can't go and bow down in his prayer room and start doing his kind of things that we learned that prayer isn't last week. He prays in his head silently, quickly, sends up this little arrow to 
God of heaven. And then he speaks. What an impressive but unimpressive prayer. And this is how unimpressive and impressive the activity prayer is. So unimpressive that you can do it in a blink of an eye, silently in your head, but so impressive. Well, you need to read the rest of Nehemiah to see how that prayer is answered, but it changes the world, it changes the purposes of God. Third reason we might not pray is we may feel inadequate. One of the things it would be very easy for me to do in a talk like this is to put us all on a massive guilt trip. And I could do that by talking about... uh, Some of those people from the past, we all hear about John Wesley spending three hours a day in prayer or Martin Luther, who used to get up at 4 a.m. because he had so many things to do that day that he had to pray about them all. Or there is a certain piety in certain circles which kind of celebrates the all night prayer meeting. Two problems I've got with the all night prayer meeting. First, if I get up at 3 a.m. and pray, I'll be good for nothing in the morning. I won't be any good to serve God, to evangelise my friends, whatever I'm supposed to be doing that day. Why not pray at a reasonable time? Right? Why, why pray at 3am? And secondly, what are we trying to do by an all-night prayer meeting? Are we trying to make God impressed? If we are, then we've fallen just a little bit into superstition, I think, at that point. Or perhaps we sense the inadequacy that we're not very eloquent speakers. You know, some people can just pray really fluently and eloquently, and we feel that we can't do that. And so we mustn't approach this subject on the basis of guilt. A good rule of thumb is probably a prayer that impresses people does not necessarily impress God. Because a prayer that is designed to impress people is not a prayer, is it? A prayer is something that we speak to God, not men. And when we hear those stories of the great giants in prayer or we're guilted into all night prayer meetings, we must come back to that simple fact that prayer is asking God for things using words. And come back to the gospel in Hebrews 10 that we are already experts in prayer. That is why Jesus died, to bring us into relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so listen to what Jesus says. We'll come back to these uh, words in a few weeks' time. When you pray on the sheet, Matthew 6, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. But we have a Father in heaven who is listening all the time and he hears us. Fourth reason we might not pray. We don't know what to pray. Again, we're going to come back to this in more detail, but just have a look at a couple of uh, examples on the sheet. Philippians 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. If that isn't an encouragement to pray, then what is? James 4, verse 2 again. You do not have because you do not ask God. Or 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So what can we pray for? Well, there's nothing too big to pray. You can pray for the downfall of North Korea, as I said last time. You can pray for King Charles to do good for the gospel. You can pray for the £400,000 for the building project to come in. But you know, those things are small potatoes, aren't they, compared to God changing the heart of your flatmate, your brother, or whoever it is 
So pray big, pray small. Have you lost a memory stick? God of the universe knows where it is. Are you struggling to get parking for that meeting? The God of the universe can find you parking. So pray big and pray small and everything in between. And you can pray for the things that you want. Especially if your desires are aligned with the gospel of God. Because remember that prayer is asking God to do his thing. And the more aligned with the gospel I am, the more my desires will be aligned with the gospel. So probably if I'm praying for a Bentley or an MX-5 or something like that, it's possible that there is a gospel reason for those desires, but probably my desires are not aligned so much with God's. And the more you are concerned with the things of God, the more you will find to pray about. As you get involved in ministry, your list of prayer points will grow. So if you think to yourself, well, I don't know what to pray for. I always find myself stuck on that kind of treadwheel of praying for the same things. You know, the essay that's due this week and a couple of other things. Or get stuck into ministry. Roll up your sleeves and get involved in the things of God, in the kingdom of God. And in particular, get to know people. And you'll soon find through those conversations and through ministry that you've got a list of things you could pray for as long as you're armed. Fifth reason, we're self-sufficient. Here is Joe Simpson, who um, fell down a crevice, was abandoned by his friend, made a film about it, brilliant film, Touching the Void, it's called. And he was dangling there for several days, all on his own, in darkness, in the middle of, where was it, South America somewhere, in the middle of a kind of icy cabin on the end of a rope, no one around for miles and miles and miles. It was an absolutely heart-rending, terrible time. And I was watching this film and I was thinking, well, surely even a, even a hardened atheist would pray at that point, because most people do pray when it, when it comes to the crunch. And he said re- this really shocking thing, I would probably occur, it would probably occur to most people to pray But I knew then that I was all alone. I realised at that point that I really don't believe in God. There is no one out there, no one to call for help. Isn't that absolutely tragic? Honest, but incredibly tragic. There is an unspoken assumption for most of us, most of the time, that we don't need to pray because we are not in the Joe Simpson situation. That we're actually doing okay. I'm not dangling from a rope at the end of a a rope in an ice cavern in South America. But what does the gospel tell us? The gospel tells us that we are in a terrible situation. That we're spiritual pygmies, that we have... Huge needs, not just those emergencies. The gospel tells us that we are in need of grace and forgiveness, that we're in need of God's help every day of our lives. The gospel tells us that we are a long way from maturity and perfection in Christ. And so we need to pray for the work of God's spirit to help us in our temptations to grow in godliness. 
And the gospel tells us that there is a great work of God to be done all around us. There are people going to hell. There are people in need of the gospel. There is work to do, work to pray about. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, I have laboured and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I've faced daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? And so if Paul, the apostle, could say these are his needs, then same for us. We need to look at our hearts and realise how much praying we need to do. And that brings us to the sixth reason we may not pray. We are simply lazy. The book of Proverbs is a great place to go if you want to challenge yourself on this universal human temptation of creatures in God's world. It involves facing up to our responsibilities and remembering that God has given us not only the privilege of prayer, but the responsibility to pray. And so there's some imperatives on the sheet. Colossians 4.3, pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, which I'm in chains so Paul commands the Colossians to pray for him in partnership in the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray continually, and another imperative. 2 Thessalonians 3.1, pray, brothers, for us, that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured just as it was with you. So Paul is expecting this partnership in prayer. He lays on them an obligation to pray. Now, as I said at the beginning, this is not a... The time management is not the solution. It's a spiritual problem and it requires a, a spiritual solution. It requires a, a worldview change, a mind change. But you might want to think about the way you use your time just a little bit. If you find that you are particularly prayerless or at a particularly prayerless time of life, it might be that you are spending too much time on the wrong things. Given the shortness of time in this world, given the fact that you only have one shot at life, are you addicted to that computer game? Someone described as, what is it, demons chasing pixelated monkeys or round a maze or something like that. Is that how you're spending your time? Chasing pixelated monkeys? I'm not saying don't play computer games. We all have ways of switching off and relaxing and you might look at my ways of relaxing and think, well, what's he doing? <laughs> Chopping wood or whatever, you know. But remember the picture of the sluggard rolling over his bed for another snooze. Such a painful picture to remember at six o'clock in the morning or whenever your alarm goes off. Well, lack of time might be an excuse for some people at some stages of life, mothers of preschool children, first century slaves. But most of us have the time that we need to pray. And of course, all of this, as I've been talking I've been assuming, I suppose, and perhaps we've been assuming that this is about our individual prayer time. But actually the real shocker, I think, is in the Bible when you start looking at commands to pray and when people pray and the settings for prayer, most of them are corporate, most of them are in groups. And so if you are struggling to pray, can I make this very practical suggestion? Pray with other people. Pray in your real food group. Make it a commitment of your life to be here 
Start with prayer tea. If you're not in the habit of coming to our prayer tea, it's a once-monthly, two-hour prayer meeting where we give ourselves a church family to hearing about what's going on and we pray. If you've never been, if you're not in the habit of coming, then pray. Get into a prayer triplet. Get into a one-to-one. Grab some people. And it's so much easier in some ways to pray with other people. Prayer in the Bible is often corporate. And I want to encourage you, if you've grown into the, the habit of thinking, actually, that doesn't count. I've got to have my own half an hour kind of personal, private, individual prayer time every day. Otherwise, I'm, I'm just worthless as a Christian. But are you still coming to the prayer meetings? Well, change that way of thinking. As you pray with other people, you're praying. And my observation in the Bible is that is actually probably how most people did most of their praying in groups. Seventhly, here is the, the, the spiritual problem at the heart of all our problems, perhaps. We think we are too sinful. There is a fear that there is something in our lives, some sin or failure or disobedience that means we are too ashamed to pray or God will not hear us. And I want to say that is absolutely right and wrong at the same time. It is right because our relationship with God is an expression of trust. And that trust is trust that God will answer our prayers. We get to pray if we are in a right relationship with God. And that's why we read in Isaiah 11, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I'll not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. What a devastating thing to read. But if you're a Christian, if you're someone who has trusted in Christ, then that could never be true of you. And so Hebrews 10 is true of you. That you have a new and living way opened up through the curtain that is his body. A great high priest over the house of God. And so do, brothers and sisters, avail yourself of that great privilege to draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having your heart sprinkled to cleanse you from a guilty conscience, having your bodies washed with pure water so that you can pray. So let's do that in Hallelujah. Father, we do thank you so much for the Lord Jesus who has opened up this way into your presence through his blood so that we can draw near to you. Thank you that Jesus has made us as close to you as we will ever be. And we pray that we will enjoy that relationship with you as our Heavenly Father Enjoy the privilege of praying to the one who is in control of every detail in this universe. We pray that we would become people of prayer. And this might bring glory to you as you build your kingdom through our prayers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.